Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And we are continuing with our story about Volkswagen. And in our last episode, we made our way up to 1982, when Dr. Carl Hahn, the former head of Volkswagen America, and the person whom former CEO Heinrich Nordhoff had handpicked way back in the 1960s to be the leader of the company, would actually fulfill that vision. In the interim, Volkswagen had leaders who had pushed the company beyond its dependence upon the Type 1 car. Type 1 is what we in America call the Volkswagen Beetle. Now, in fact, Volkswagen's manufacturing facilities in Germany had already stopped producing the Beetle by early 1980. The original plan was to stop in 1979, but as they were getting toward the end of the year, they realized that they had way too many orders to fill. They had to actually keep going, keep producing beyond when they had planned to stop in order to meet those demands and to keep building that reliable little car. By mid-1980, that had changed and production had shifted to Volkswagen's facilities in Brazil and Mexico. So the Beetle was still being produced there, but it was no longer being produced in Germany. While the company made far fewer of the Type 1 vehicles, the facility in Puebla, Mexico, churned them out all the way up until 2003. That means Volkswagen was making the Type 1 air-cooled rear-engine Volkswagen Beetle for nearly 60 years without interruption. In Mexico, the car became a popular option for taxi drivers because the vehicles were small, they had good traction, and they were easy to maintain due to their simple mechanical structure. Eventually, in 2012, the Mexican government outlawed the Beetle as a taxi cab car, deeming it too unsafe for that purpose. Oh, and uh, before I move on, I should at least mention that Volkswagen began making the Jetta model of vehicles starting in 1979. The design of the Jetta aimed at a customer that wanted something a bit larger than the Volkswagen Golf, uh, known as the Rabbit here in the United States. And the Jetta is one of the models Volkswagen still produces today and is consistently one of their more popular models. It also comes in a lot of different configurations, two-door, four-door, five-door. I had to mention it because my producer Tari used to drive one, though she drove a more recent model than a 1979 Jetta, I imagine. She's nodding yes, in case you couldn't hear her nod. But let's talk about Volkswagen, the company, from the time Dr. Hahn took over up to present day. Now, one measure that Han took was to work with China to establish Volkswagen's presence in the vast Chinese market. In the early 1980s, China was just starting to enter into a massive economic transformation, one that we're still seeing play out today. Volkswagen would be one of the first Western automotive companies to work with China. In fact, it was the first a Western automotive company to work with China to create an early automobile industry in that nation. It would be incredibly important both to China and to Volkswagen itself. After all, China has the largest population of any country in the world, and for several years, Volkswagen was the only non-Chinese car company operating within that country. And as you might imagine, that meant Volkswagen was able to get a big jump on top of the other car companies. 
Today, Volkswagen and its partners manufacture vehicles and parts in more than 30 manufacturing facilities throughout China. Dr. Han also continued Volkswagen's practice of acquiring other companies, and acquisitions are going to play a really big part in today's episode, as we'll hear later. But he oversaw the completion of Volkswagen's acquisition of 51% of the Spanish car company Seat, in 1986, as well as uh, uh, gaining a substantial stake in a Czech company called Skoda in 1990. These two companies would be the first non-German subsidiaries for Volkswagen. Uh, The first subsidiary, if you remember from the last episode, was Audi. That was another German car company, though. Volkswagen would later acquire more ownership of both car companies, eventually owning both outright. And Volkswagen would become a leading car company in Europe, particularly in the southern and eastern European markets. The subsidiaries make talking about Volkswagen a little tricky, as there's the Volkswagen Group, that includes all the companies and brands uh, like Audi, in addition to Volkswagen the car company, which is specifically the company that makes branded Volkswagen vehicles, like the Beetle. While Volkswagen was growing through these acquisitions, it was also in some ways following a plan very similar to what had been the cornerstone for the company during much of its history. So for decades, the Beetle had been the primary product from Volkswagen. While Volkswagen was finally retiring the Beetle in this time, it was essentially doing the same thing. It was following the same play with a different sensible car, which would be the Golf, It's not incorrect to say the Golf was intended for the same type of consumer who previously would have purchased a Beetle. But Han recognized that the strategy alone would not be enough to sustain the company. And in fact, it was that depending too heavily upon any one vehicle model is a recipe for potential disaster if markets should change. With that in mind, Han gave more freedom to the Audi division. Uh, Now, this really isn't an episode about Audi, so I don't want to get too far off track here. But it would mean that the Audi brand was given a bit more slack to develop cars for a higher-end market than Volkswagen's Golf catered to. And it would give Audi the, the, uh, the freedom to start experimenting more and uh, really branching out from what it had been doing, breaking free of a perception that Audi was a brand that made cars that old people liked. It was uh, able to get past that. And Audi, for the most part, operated as an independent division within Volkswagen around this time forward. One enormous political event that would hit close to home for Dr. Hahn, quite literally, was the reunification of Germany. Toward the end of the 1980s, it became clear that the Soviet Union's days were numbered. And that entire story is far too big to fit into an episode about Volkswagen. But one of the many consequences of the Soviet Union's collapse was that East and West Germany would reunite into a whole nation. Now, this was when the Berlin Wall, which once stood as a symbol of oppression and authoritarianism, was pulled down to the ground. For Volkswagen, it would mean the opportunity to establish new manufacturing facilities in what had previously been Soviet-controlled territory. As for Dr. Hahn, the meaning was much more personal. He had grown up in Chimnitz, which is in eastern Germany. 
After World War II, his family left the region as that region was falling to Soviet control. In fact, Dr. Han's father was one of the founders of Auto Union, which would later evolve into Audi. So for Dr. Han, this was more than just Volkswagen growing its production facilities. It was coming back to a part of Germany that hadn't been, you know, approachable for years. It had been behind Soviet control, behind the Iron Curtain. Part of Han's reasoning, in fact, a large part of it, when it came to opening up manufacturing facilities, was that relying upon a centralized production model wasn't necessarily efficient or cost-effective. He wanted to build more plants in various regions so that the production facilities weren't that far away from the people who were actually buying the cars. That really cut down costs. If you're building the stuff near where the people who want the stuff can get the stuff, then you're cutting down costs significantly. So he was looking ahead to a more unified Europe, and he wanted to build a car company capable of flourishing in that environment. At the same time, expanding operations costs a lot of money. And Volkswagen was spending a ton to build out these manufacturing facilities. Moreover, Han felt that the European market would serve as sort of the foundation for the rest of Volkswagen's businesses around the world. So most of his focus was on developing the European market and investing in that market, which meant Volkswagen's presence in other parts of the world, notably in North America and the United States, really began to fade quite a bit. Fans of Volkswagen in the U.S. felt like they were being neglected, something that stung more than a little bit considering the fact that Dr. Hahn had once been the head of the American division of Volkswagen. The popularity of Volkswagen in America had been on shaky ground since 1981 when sales figures dipped from year to year. It went down from 1980 to 1981. Now, the numbers fluctuated a bit over the next several years. Sometimes they would go down quite a bit. Sometimes they would rebound a little bit. But the general trend from 1981 all the way to 1993 was to see declines in sales. And I'm sure most of you know that's the opposite of what you want to see in a sales chart. And when I say a decline, I mean there was a really big drop-off. So back in 1980, Volkswagen sold around 338,000 vehicles in the U.S. market. In 1993, that number dropped down to fewer than 50,000 vehicles. So 338,000 down to less than 50,000. That's catastrophic. So what caused that number to drop down so low in the United States? Well, one reason was that the general consensus was that the cars coming out of the American manufacturing plant were substandard. And another was that the cars coming out of Mexico were similarly unreliable. And the Puebla manufacturing facility in Mexico was experiencing a ton of different problems. So it wasn't until 1994 when Volkswagen introduced the third generation of the Golf and the third generation of the Jetta models in the U.S. that sales began to recover. The American market was fiercely competitive at that time. Japanese automakers were really filling in the void that had been left by Volkswagen. And the Japanese companies were offering cars that aimed at customers who were looking for reliable, inexpensive vehicles. So in the 1970s, if you were talking about an auto import in the United States, you were probably talking about Volkswagen. But by the mid-80s, That had changed. If you were talking about an import, you were probably talking about a Japanese car. And Dr. Han didn't seem too concerned about reversing that trend as he was focused more on the European market at the time. 
Now, that's not to say Volkswagen wasn't introducing new vehicles during Dr. Hahn's time as CEO. The company produced new models like the Volkswagen Santana, uh, also known as the Quantum, which evolved from the Volkswagen Passat. Volkswagen also made a few cars for various regional markets like Brazil or Eastern Europe, and these were very much peculiar to those regions. So if you weren't from there, you were not likely to see one of these types of Volkswagens. In 1990, Volkswagen launched an ad campaign in the United States that I still remember quite well. The company introduced a new word to planet Earth. That new word was Farfignugan. This was technically a, a, a brand new word made up of two existing German words. You had Fahren, meaning to drive, and Vergnügen, which means enjoyment. So this was supposed to be about the enjoyment of driving, driving enjoyment, Vergnügen. This was not an existing German word, rather one that was invented for the ad campaign. However, I will say that the German language frequently strings together multiple words to create a new word, rather than just inventing a sensible short word to handle things. That's why you will occasionally run into German words that are incredibly long, because they've just strung together a bunch of pre-existing words to describe something new. Now, despite the ad campaign, the general feeling in the U.S. was that Volkswagen was just focused on other markets and not in North America. In 1992, Dr. Hahn retired as CEO. And remember, the worst year for North American sales would follow in 1993, partly because Dr. Hahn's strategy hadn't really supported the North American market. The new head of the company would be a man named Ferdinand Piesch. And by the way, I know I butchered the pronunciation of Piesch in a previous episode when I talked about this, this family. But Ferdinand Piesch had previously helmed the Audi division under Volkswagen Group. And beyond that, he traced his lineage back to the very founding of Volkswagen. His grandfather was Ferdinand Porsche himself. His father was Anton Piesch, who married Ferdinand Porsche's daughter, Louise Hedwig Annie Wilhelmina Porsche. Whew, what a name. And so if you listen to my first episode in this series, you know that Anton Piesch had been the director of Volkswagen during World War II. That meant he was overseeing operations back when Volkswagen was dependent upon forced labor. And reportedly, he ran off with a significant amount of money from Volkswagen uh, while fleeing Allied forces in 1945. He would get arrested by French authorities along with Ferdinand Porsche and spend a couple of years in jail before finally being released. Well, Ferdinand Piesch had previously worked at Porsche, mainly in efforts to build high-performance racing cars, with the primary goal of building a vehicle that could win the Le Mans endurance race. Uh, this type of race is different from those that are all about the first vehicle to cross a finish line after a given number of laps or distance. Instead, the winning vehicle at Le Mans is the one that has covered the most distance in a 24-hour period. So whichever car has gone the furthest within 24 hours across a, uh, a, a predetermined route. Porsche had been entering versions of its Porsche 917 for 25 years before a Porsche driver took home the top prize. Ferdinand had achieved his goal of engineering a winning race car at great expense. In fact, it was such an expensive endeavor that it nearly bankrupted Porsche. In 1972, 
Ferdinand Piech would uh, transition from Porsche to go work at Audi. Now, this wasn't necessarily by choice. Piech's obsession with creating faster racing cars had almost brought down the company, and ownership of the company fell to two families, the Porsche family and the Piech family. And both of those families trace their history back to the founder, Ferdinand Porsche. Both of them owned about 50% of the company, Porsche. And the two sides were beginning to fight with each other. And I swear, going through the stories makes it seem like it's a season of Game of Thrones. We'll learn more about that later in this episode. So in order to prevent this rivalry from tearing the company to pieces, the two families agreed that no one from either side should be involved in the day-to-day operations of Porsche. So that's why Piech would leave Porsche, the car company Porsche, not the holding company, for Audi. Ferdinand Piech would transform Audi from that brand that was being viewed as a bit old-fashioned and catering to the elderly into more of a luxury sedan brand. And so it brought Audi into competition against vehicle makers like BMW or Mercedes. But Piech had grander designs. He wanted to head up Volkswagen itself. I'll have more to say about him in just a second. But first... There are tons of VPN providers out there, and you've probably heard of a couple of them, and some of you may have even used a VPN before, but I like to do research on my sponsors, and I only recommend brands to my listeners that I believe in and that I use myself, and I can say with full confidence that ExpressVPN is the best VPN on the market, and here's why. ExpressVPN does not log your data. Lots of really cheap or free VPNs make money by selling your data to ad companies, ExpressVPN developed a technology called Trusted Server that makes it impossible for their servers to log any of your information. Second is speed. I've tried a lot of VPNs in the past, and many slow your connection down or make your device sluggish. I've been using ExpressVPN for a couple of years now, and my internet speeds are blazing fast. Even when I connect to servers thousands of miles away, I can still stream HD-quality videos with zero lag. The last thing that really sets ExpressVPN apart from other VPNs is how easy it is to use. Unlike other VPNs, you don't have to input uh, or program anything. You just fire up the app and you click one button to connect. It's so easy even your grandparents could use it. And it's not just me saying this. TechRadar, The Verge, CNET, and many other tech experts rate ExpressVPN the number one VPN in the world. So... Protect yourself with the VPN that I use and trust. Use my link, expressvpn.com slash techstuff today and get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash techstuff. Visit expressvpn.com slash techstuff to learn more. All right, let's get back to the episode. Now we're getting into an era in Volkswagen's history that was particularly complicated by family politics. This stuff gets juicy. There's betrayal, there's shifty maneuvering, there's backstabbing, there are extramarital affairs. I mean, if you look at the Porsche and PH families from the 1970s to the 2000s and a little bit beyond, it sounds like the stuff out of a soap opera like Dynasty or Dallas. It's crazy. On top of that, we enter into a bizarre corporate structure in which different companies gain a stake in each other. And in some cases, it looks to me like the whole thing is Ouroboros, you know, the the snake eating its own tail. 
And I'll do my best a little bit later in this episode to try and work out how that actually ends up being structured for no other reason than to illustrate how the ownership of these companies is incredibly complicated and, at least to me, somewhat icky. In the meantime, we've got other stuff to touch on. Now, while I have lots of critical things to say about Piesch, one thing that's clear is that his ambition pushed Volkswagen to new heights. He was reportedly a very hard boss to work for. Like, he was incredibly demanding and ruthless. Uh, He was quick to throw you aside if he didn't think you were useful. And there are a lot of other negative things I could say, but in 1998, the company would introduce the new Beetle, and that would become available for purchase in the United States the following year. And that showed that they were now paying attention to the North American market again, and no longer keeping such a laser focus just on Europe. Uh, This was a compact car that was inspired by the original Beetle, but it featured sleeker lines, uh, a front-mounted inline four-cylinder engine. If you listen to the first part of the series, you remember that the original Volkswagen Beetle was an air-cooled rear-mounted engine, so it was very different from that. And Motor Trends would actually name it the Import Car of the Year in 1999. Despite its small size... It really wasn't the most efficient vehicle on the road. It averaged 21 miles per gallon. You would have thought that perhaps it would have been a little better about that, but no. Well, the the new Beetle, along with an updated Passat and a new Jetta model, all helped revitalize Volkswagen sales in North America after that market had been largely forgotten about for more than a decade. Meanwhile, on the corporate side of things, Piesch was leading some pretty serious efforts to really expand Volkswagen's assets. One of the big acquisitions at this time was Bentley Motors, a company that had gone through a couple of changes in ownership, having been part of Rolls-Royce for nearly 40 years before a company called Vickers PLC purchased the Rolls-Royce Motor Division in 1970. 28 years after that, Piesch and Volkswagen came calling with an offer to purchase the Bentley brand, though Volkswagen would not acquire ownership of the Rolls-Royce logo or name. They did get hold of the designs. They could use the car designs, but they could not use the logo or name of Rolls-Royce. Bentleys, in case you don't know, are luxury cars. Like, as luxury as luxury gets, really. Craftspeople hand-make many of the details on the vehicles. Like, You'll get like hand-carved dashboards, for example. So the manufacturing process is guided by a human touch nearly every step of the way. It is slow and methodical, and these are extremely expensive luxury cars. They're also extremely British. The cost of the acquisition was 430 million pounds. But we're not done with Volkswagen's purchases in 1998 yet. The company also acquired the rights to use the Bugatti brand name. Now, Bugatti has its own odd past. In fact, at this point, I think it must come as a prerequisite for car companies. It was founded in the early 20th century by Ettore Bugatti, who built many successful race cars in the early 1900s. But after his death in the 1940s, the company kind of lost focus, and by the 1950s, It had pretty much faded from memory. It wasn't really producing cars anymore. In 1987, Romano Artoli, an entrepreneur, acquired the rights to the Bugatti brand and built new manufacturing facilities with the the intent of making Bugatti a prestige brand again. 
The new Bugatti company produced several cars, but a recession in the 1990s took a big chunk out of the company's assets, and it was essentially a failed business by 1995. So three years later, in 1998, Volkswagen acquires the brand name Bugatti and starts up production with new model designs. So today, the Bugatti brand is associated with supercars that come with incredible high-end price tags. And I think it's mostly a testament to Piesha's interest in fast cars. Like, he clearly always had a fascination with building incredibly fast vehicles. And Bugatti are the type of cars that look like they're going fast even when they're sitting still. And I'm still not done with their acquisitions in 1998. One other big brand that Volkswagen acquired that year was Lamborghini. That was the Italian luxury sports car company. It's now part of Volkswagen. It was founded in the 1960s. Uh, Largely, it was intended to be a competitor to Ferrari. And developing high-performance race cars, as I mentioned earlier, is really expensive. I mean, it nearly bankrupted Porsche. Well, for Lamborghini, that they were having the same sort of issues. They were spending way more money than they were making. And then that paired with the oil crisis of the 1970s meant that very few orders for these high-end sports cars were coming in. It led to a disastrous collapse of the Lamborghini company, and the company went bankrupt in 1978. Uh, A few years later, brothers Patrick and Jean-Claude Memran revived Lamborghini, and it became a brand uh, anew in the 1980s with with models like the Countach, which I remember as a kid I thought was the most amazing-looking car I'd ever seen. But then they ended up selling Lamborghini to the Chrysler Corporation. In 1994, Chrysler would in turn sell Lamborghini off to a Malaysian company, And it was from that company that Volkswagen would acquire the rights to the Lamborghini name and designs. Now, technically, Lamborghini falls under the Audi division at Volkswagen. And as I mentioned before, Audi gets to operate more or less independently from Volkswagen, but it belongs to Volkswagen Group. So Lamborghini is one of the brands under the Volkswagen Group name. All right, let's skip ahead to 2002. Volkswagen announced two new lines of vehicles that year. There was the Phaeton line, that was a luxury car brand, and there was the uh, Touareg line, which are SUVs. Now, this was also the year that Ferdinand Piëch would step out of the role of CEO for Volkswagen, and he became the chairman of the board for Volkswagen Group uh, for their supervisory and steering committees. Piëch would continue to have significant influence within the company. His successor as CEO was an engineer named Bernd Peter Pischitzreder. And I'm sure I've butchered that last name, so we're just going to call him Bernd because it's a lot easier. In 2003, the final Type 1 Beetle, the original Volkswagen vehicle model that had carried the company for decades, rolled off the manufacturing facility in Puebla, Mexico. And it was... Uh, actually given a number. It was number. It was car number uh, 21,529,464. It was not sold off to some lucky motorist. Instead, it was actually shipped back to Volkswagen's headquarters in Wolfsburg, Germany, because as Indiana Jones would say, it belongs in a museum. Bernd would only stay at CEO for just a few short years, before he was essentially forced to resign. And allegedly, the reason that he was forced to resign was because he was frequently coming to disagreements with Piesh, who really wanted to keep control of this company. 
Martin Winterkorn, who had been the leader for the Audi division, would then step in to take over the role as CEO. Uh, That would happen in January 2007. And Winterkorn had been a PH protege, though that would be put to the test in a big, big way. So at first, PH thought, oh, yay, now I've got my guy in this space, even though PH had handpicked Berndt earlier. So um, the fact that he kept getting burned by people that he picked might say more about his management style, I guess. In 2008, Volkswagen announced plans to build an assembly plant in Chattanooga, Tennessee, a billion-dollar assembly plant. Uh, It would be finished by 2011, and this was the goal of producing cars for the American market, you know, within the market itself, again, to augment Volkswagen's production facilities and reduce the cost of, of getting cars to Americans. That was also the year when we would see a Game of Thrones-like struggle really heat up. So let me see if I can sort all of this out. This is also going to mean sticking with this particular story and skipping some other stuff in the timeline for now, but I want to try and work my way through this whole sordid affair. All right, so this is really the story of two companies, Volkswagen Group and Porsche SE, which is a holding company. And it's also the story of two families, the Porsche family and the related Piesh family. They're cousins to each other. And both of these trace their lineage to Ferdinand Porsche, the founder of both Porsche, the auto company, and Volkswagen, the auto company. And it's also about a lot of complex corporate maneuvers that, frankly, I don't fully understand. Because tech is easy, but corporate structures are really hard. Okay, so... The Porsche Piesh families own a holding company called Porsche SE. And now, now, typically, a holding company's purpose is to create a central point of control for multiple distinct businesses while simultaneously isolating those businesses enough so that if one should fail or falter, it doesn't drag the others down with it. So it's a way to limit liability, in other words. And each business under a holding company performs as its own distinct business, though it ultimately is under the umbrella of the parent holding company. The holding company holds assets and equity, but doesn't get involved in the day-to-day operations of the business it holds. So you can think of it as the business owners, but not the business operators. At least that's how it usually goes. So let's lay out the arrangement here. So Anton Piesch and Ferdinand Porsche first founded the company that would evolve into Porsche SE way back in the 1930s. And this is that holding company that oversees assets. Essentially, this company holds the assets of the Porsche and Piesch families. It it funnels all of the shares that all the different members of these families have and represents their ownership of Porsche. Uh, Different members of the family uh, own different numbers of shares. So like one person in Porsche family might own twice as many shares as most of the other members of the families. So just imagine a really big family of people who don't really get along all that well with one another, and they all own some part of this holding company. Okay, so Porsche SE in turn owns the family interest in another holding company called Porsche Zwischenholden. (laughs) I... Ah, oh, you Germans. Zwischenholding essentially means intermediate holding company, which, I mean, that tracks, right? Like, it's a holding company that's owned by a different holding company. Now, to be fair, 
it's a little more complicated than even that. This is starting to turn into like a Russian nesting doll situation here. But the Porsche PH families own 50.1% of this intermediary holding company. So you can think of Porsche SE as the organization that holds the assets that in turn represent controlling interest in another holding company. But it's this intermediary holding company that owns 100% of Porsche Automobile Group. That's, that's the actual car manufacturing company that's responsible for building and selling Porsche vehicles. So you have Porsche SE, which represents the family Porsche PH interest in Porsche Zwischen Holding, and that in turn owns Porsche Automobile Group. Got it? Because I don't. Now, Porsche had, as in the the car company, had a long history of being involved with Volkswagen's operations since the very beginning. And the holding company had a 5% stake in Volkswagen up until 2005. So the Porsche holding company also owned some ownership in Volkswagen, a small amount, 5%. But in 2005, Porsche acquired more shares in Volkswagen and increased the ownership to 20%. So now, The Porsche holding company owns one-fifth of Volkswagen. For a while, it looked like that was all that they could do because the German government had actually passed a law specifically for Volkswagen that prevented any single shareholder from acquiring more than 20% of the ownership of the company. This was in large part because Lower Saxony, the, the government region of Lower Saxony, was an owner of Volkswagen. If you listen to my first episode, you remember I mentioned that, that the trade unions still to this day have a powerful voice within the operations of Volkswagen. And technically, Lower Saxony had a little more than 20% ownership of Volkswagen. So by passing this law, Germany was preventing anyone else from getting more power in the company than Lower Saxony had. So this government group would have the most uh, powerful say in the company as long as everyone else was limited to 20% ownership or less. But then the European Union Commission challenged this law in 2007, and things started to change. And perhaps emboldened by that challenge, the Porsche holding company increased its stake in Volkswagen to nearly 31% of the shares. So now it owned more of Volkswagen than Lower Saxony did. Little by little, Porsche would add more shares of Volkswagen to its stake. And the process was incredibly expensive. So by 2009, when Porsche held more than 50% ownership, so it had controlling interest in Volkswagen, it became clear that it was not going to be sustainable. Porsche, the company, was in debt up to its corporate eyeballs. So then, in a move that I still find perplexing, Volkswagen goes and acquires 49.9% ownership in Porsche Automobile Group, as in the actual automobile company. All right, now follow me here. Porsche, the holding company, takes majority ownership of Volkswagen Group. Volkswagen Group has nearly 50% ownership of the Porsche car company. See, I told you this was confusing. Now, at this point, the Volkswagen and Porsche companies were in talks of actually merging together. But that didn't happen as the EU commission seemed ready to oppose the move and there were some legal risks. 
But that would all get settled by 2012 because then Volkswagen would go ahead and purchase the remaining interest in the Porsche Automotive Company. Not the holding company, but the actual car company. In addition, managers in Volkswagen were to become managers in Porsche SE, which would ensure that Volkswagen would remain the dominant party at the table. Now, another part of the reason why this all gets so messy is that the families involved were feuding. On the Porsche side, you had Wolfgang Porsche, who was widely regarded as the head of that family. So you can think of Wolfgang as the godfather of the Porsches. On the Piesch side, you had Ferdinand Piesch, the former Volkswagen CEO and then the chairman of Volkswagen's supervisory board. The two were trying to outmaneuver each other throughout this entire process, and Piesch had clear contempt for his cousin. There are lots of stories about Piesch insulting the Porsche side of the family, with one report claiming that Piesch likened the Porsches to pigs and then likened himself to a boar. And what he was saying, he was alluding to the fact that he, Piesch, had grown up going to a tough boarding school and he had put in the work to grow Volkswagen over the years. He was an engineer. He actually did the work. Whereas the Porsche side, all of them went to fancy prep schools they had no interest in engineering, and most of them were lawyers. So it was clear he didn't have a very high opinion. This would continue to boil over over the following years. I'll explain more in just a moment, but first let's take another quick break. Okay, so that whole corporate mess I just covered kind of boils down to Wolfgang Porsche and Ferdinand Piesch facing off against each other, with Piesch ultimately winning, at least a little bit. And if it weren't for that darn Dieselgate scandal, this would likely be the most crazy part of the Volkswagen story. But then we do have the Dieselgate scandals. Let's talk about what that was and what it means. So back in the mid-2000s, Volkswagen began to make a serious marketing push designing diesel-based vehicles for the United States and other markets and instead of gasoline-powered vehicles. So diesel engines were invented by a guy named Diesel, and he built a combustion engine that he intended to run off of stuff like peanut oil. And in fact, you can run diesel engines off of some plant-based oils. Sometimes you want to do a little bit of processing before you do that, but you can do it. Diesel engines can run at a much higher efficiency than gasoline engines. So you can run a, a diesel engine for longer with a comparable amount of fuel than a gasoline engine. Now, I could do a full episode to lay out the differences between diesel and gasoline engines, but really for the consumer, a big differentiating factor is just how far you can travel per given amount of fuel. Diesel cars get more miles to the gallon than gasoline-based cars. And there are a lot of other factors that determine whether or not it makes financial sense to go with diesel over gasoline. That includes the cost of the fuel, because if diesel is significantly more expensive than gasoline, you have to factor that in, as well as the purchase price of the vehicle. If diesel vehicles are more expensive, then you may not see a financial benefit to going with diesel as opposed to gasoline. But that's neither here nor there for this scandal. Now, one of the things car companies must do is they have to meet emissions standards with their vehicles in order to be able to do business within certain countries, like the United States. And this is all related to environmental impact. So your cars have to perform at a certain standard, you know, beneath a threshold, or the United States government doesn't allow you to sell those cars in the U.S. market. So back in the mid-2000s, 
some engineers at Volkswagen were trying to figure out how to make a diesel engine that would operate within the restrictions on emissions that the United States government had established. But they also were working with very tight restrictions within Volkswagen itself. So the culture within Volkswagen was success at any cost. I mean, Piesch had had proven that he was willing to spend tons of money to succeed at various engineering tasks. Uh, but at the same time, the restrictions were so tight on this department, they didn't have very many options. So they realized that rather than actually changing the engine, which was going to be very expensive and beyond the budget they were given and beyond their capabilities, they could instead make a few tweaks to some software algorithms to make the engines operate at or below emissions thresholds. And that would allow them to stay within budget for the development of the cars. There was only one problem. The tweaks meant that Volkswagen was going to essentially be cheating on emissions tests. Now, this didn't get discovered right away. It wasn't until 2014 when some West Virginia University researchers found that two cars that they were testing, a Volkswagen Jetta and a Volkswagen Passat, emitted much higher emissions levels than what they should be doing based upon emissions testing. Now, Volkswagen's official response, initially anyway, was that there must have been some sort of unexpected technical issue and unusual test conditions that led to this. Engineers at Volkswagen sent a memo to CEO Martin Winterkorn at the time, or Winterkorn, but it's not known if Winterkorn actually saw that particular memo because it was bundled with a whole bunch of other memos at the time. Um, there are a lot of people who suggest that perhaps he knew about this early on and others who say that maybe he didn't. Well, Volkswagen would issue a recall on diesel vehicles. They recalled all of them. I guess that's recall, not a recall. <sighs> Behind the curtain, guys, I've had two hours sleep. So anyway, the California Air Resources Board, or CARB, would then find some irregularities on supposedly fixed vehicles in 2015. These are vehicles that Volkswagen had supposedly recalled and then fixed and then put back into the market. But the CARB was finding that there were still these irregularities. Then the engineers at CARB were finding that Volkswagen's explanations for why those irregularities were happening didn't seem to actually match up what they were seeing. Then the Environmental Protection Agency goes and tells Volkswagen, hey, you know, we're not going to let you sell any of your 2016 diesel vehicles in the United States. And it was at that point that Volkswagen said, oh, um, our bad. Actually, we just found out there's some software irregularities. And then they explained what was going on. And that leads us to the actual scandal. So essentially, when the vehicle's computer detected that it was going into emissions testing, that someone was connecting their testing equipment to the vehicle's computer, it would then engage systems that would limit emissions. It would also decrease engine performance. Now, if the cars just operated in that mode all the time, we wouldn't be talking about a scandal. But Volkswagen probably wouldn't have seen as many sales because drivers would be disappointed. They would feel like the cars were not performing very well. They were underpowered. Their performance just wouldn't meet expectations. So in order to meet expectations, they needed to have the engines have a higher output of power. But if they did the higher output of power, you have higher emissions. So if a Volkswagen diesel car's computer detected that it was connected to emissions testing, it would initiate this dampening system and you would have lower emissions and lower output. 
But then once it was detected that it was no longer connected to an emissions testing machine, it would disengage those dampening systems and the car's performance would improve significantly, but it would also emit way more pollution, including stuff like nitrogen oxide. And it would be well beyond what was the emissions threshold. So in other words, the cars were cheating on tests. When the teacher was looking, and in this case, the teacher is someone performing an emissions test, then the vehicle would pull its punches and purposefully underperform, emitting fewer gases. And then once the teacher was looking somewhere else, it was party time. Well, the EPA was not amused and concluded that Volkswagen had purposefully tried to circumvent the Clean Air Act in the United States, and further, that the Department of Justice would have the authority to impose a total of $37,500 of civil fines per vehicle that used this kind of workaround, like as in each individual vehicle. The defeat devices were in vehicles spanning model years from 2009 to 2016. So if you added them all up, it would mean that Volkswagen could potentially face a maximum of up to $18 billion in fines alone. Volkswagen then admitted that this same defeat system was in place in 11 million diesel cars around the world, and that Volkswagen had already set aside several billion dollars worth to fix these affected cars. Then came criminal proceedings against engineers and executives at Volkswagen, both in the United States and in Germany, as well as a scramble to figure out how to buy back vehicles that didn't meet the emissions standards. So in total, it would cost Volkswagen around $30 billion. That is a princely sum and an enormously expensive mistake. And mistake in judgment, I should say. It's not like they accidentally did this. They, the engineers that did this did this knowingly. And the costs went beyond the monetary. Martin Win uh, Vinterkorn, who was uh, CEO when the scandal first broke, would end up accepting responsibility. But he also denied that he had had any personal wrongdoing involved in this. He said that he had no direct hand knowledge and he had no uh, uh, direct involvement in the decision to try and circumvent clean air laws. But he also said that as CEO, he has to be held responsible for this sort of thing happening under his watch. So he resigned his position, and he was replaced by uh, Matthias Müller, who pledged to cooperate with investigators to get to the bottom of who was responsible, while also making amends to customers who were directly affected by the scheme. Now, Müller was pre previously the CEO of Porsche, which also would end up getting pulled into this Dieselgate scandal. It wasn't just Volkswagen vehicles. There were also some Porsche vehicles and Audi vehicles that would be involved in this. So he would serve as Volkswagen CEO only until 2018, and that was when the board of directors kicked him out, largely because the company as a whole had been perceived as moving too slowly to address the problems that arose due to Dieselgate. So his replacement was Herbert Dies, who was formerly the brand chief over at Volkswagen. So this is becoming like a revolving door situation with these quick turnarounds in CEOs. Ferdinand Piech resigned from the supervisory board of Volkswagen in April 2015. This would be before Martin Vinterkorn was, uh, had to resign. Then Piech would sell off his shares in Volkswagen in May of 2015, essentially divorcing himself from the company entirely. 
this predated Martin Vinterkorn's resignation as well. So in fact, PH was attempting to have Vinterkorn actually removed as CEO. And this is what led to PH deciding he was going to step away from the company. He voted to have Vinterkorn removed, but he was the only member of the steering committee to do so. Uh, the others all voted against him. And Wolfgang Porsche, his rival, his cousin, was one of the parties who was, you know, essentially campaigning against PH. So PH left the company, sold off his interest, and then he threw a whole bunch of executives under the bus as he left. He implied that a lot of people in senior levels of management, including all the way up to the executive level, knew about and had approved of the illegal technology that allowed Volkswagen's diesel engines to cheat on emissions tests. Now, whether his allegations were true or not was uncertain, but he dumped a ton of fuel on the fire. And I guess it must have been gasoline fuel because diesel doesn't burn like gasoline does. Don't try that at home. Piesch would end up passing away at age 82 in 2019. He left behind 12 or maybe 13 children. The numbers aren't entirely clear. There are a lot, there's a lot of actual disagreement. Um, he was married twice, and he had a couple of kids outside of marriage. Uh, in fact, one, a couple of them were with uh, the estranged wife of his cousin. So he had an affair with his cousin's wife. I told you this was like Game of Thrones, man. I was not kidding. So Volkswagen is still managing the consequences of Dieselgate to this day. CEO Herbert Dies is at the center of some criminal charges that state he and other Volkswagen executives were waiting too long to inform investors of the extent and nature of the Dieselgate scandal, and that as such, they were essentially committing fraud. They were telling investors that the company was in much better shape than it actually was. Meanwhile, Volkswagen is trying to move beyond this disaster. It has announced a plan that by 2025, we're going to see the company producing one and a half million electric cars. And that number actually keeps climbing, so it might be higher by the time you hear this episode. Oh, and Volkswagen also produced the final edition Volkswagen Beetle, which was an updated version of the new Beetle. And that, that last one, the very last final edition Volkswagen Beetle, rolled off the production line in July 2019. So now the Volkswagen Beetle is retired again. But who knows? Maybe the company is going to bring it back out of retirement one more time in an effort to climb out of this massive mess it finds itself in. And that's where Volkswagen is today. As I said, uh, I found this story to be fascinating, not just from a technological standpoint, but just from the political, social, corporate side. It's so complicated and it's it's so, so t closely tied with family feuding. I, I had no idea about Volkswagen's involvement with the Porsche family, uh, largely because it's a European company. And my, my vision of Volkswagen has always been the Volkswagen Beetle. That's if you say the word Volkswagen to me, I think of the old VW Beetle and this sort of quirky, iconic vehicle that's associated with like the hippies and the the summer of love and that kind of stuff and, and Disney movies. I don't think of a company that was founded uh, and well, or at least funded by Nazis and then run by various people who were having crazy feuds with each other and power struggles. Like none of that ever occurred to me. And I definitely didn't know that Volkswagen had purchased 
brands like Lamborghini and Bugatti, probably because those cars are just a hair outside of my price range by a few hundred thousand dollars. But it was a, an interesting thing to look into. If you guys have any suggestions for future topics of tech stuff, whether it's a company, a technology, maybe it's a trend in tech you would like me to talk about, let me know. Send me a message on Facebook or Twitter. The handle we use at both of those is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 